0: Hey guys, welcome to our 10th episode of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So before we get into this episode, we want to thank everyone for their great feedback. Lots of iTunes reviews came in this week, and we appreciate them so much. They help us get up there in rankings, which of course we're having problems with because we just started out. But please also follow us on social media on Instagram and Twitter. We are the True Crime Couple. We post pictures regarding every episode, and we will get back to every comment and question you guys have for us. And you can visit our website at truecrimecouple.com for all the blog posts we put up about all of the episodes we do. And it's on there that we have all of our discussion boards. If you're feeling super generous, you can help support us on patreon.com truecrimecouple. Anything helps and everything is appreciated. Okay, so let's get into episode 10. From 1972 to 1973, five boys were attacked, all between the ages of 8 and 10. Four were murdered and one survived. Four of the victims were sodomized by their attacker and had their genitals mutilated or removed. They were all stabbed in frenzying patterns. One even had an X carved in his chest. The murders remain unsolved. Now, I know if you're listening, true crime has to be your thing. But this case may not seem familiar to you at all, and that just adds to the tragedy of these attacks. The boys that were killed were from Harlem. Four of the victims were African-American, and one of the boys is of Puerto Rican descent. In this case, we are of course going to go over the heinous crimes, the suspects, and the theories involved, but we're also going to cover the idea of the less dead and what happens when a community and its police force are not on the same page.
1: Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are
0: all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Before we get into it all, I just want to make a disclaimer. The details that we're covering today are somewhat controversial and may open up a lot of difficult discussions. The case is also one of particular brutality, especially because we're dealing with the most vulnerable members of our society, children. And the things that these boys had to endure are unspeakable and grotesque. We're not going to get into every little detail, but some gruesome details are going to be discussed, so we just wanted to give that disclaimer before we started. In order to understand this crime better, we must understand where and when it took place, because those are the two reasons that you've never heard of this horrific case. Harlem is a neighborhood in the New York City borough of Manhattan. It sits just between the Bronx, the Upper East and West Side, as well as Central Park. The makeup of this community is diverse, and in the time we will be discussing today, the 1960s and 70s, It is made up of predominantly African Americans in West and Central Harlem, and East Harlem, which later becomes known as Spanish Harlem, has a large Puerto Rican population. There are also small areas throughout the community where Italian Americans reside. The area is rich in African American cultural landmarks and experiences, which have been there since the Jazz Age of the 1920s. It, of course, is home to what became known as the Harlem Renaissance, a literary movement where African-American culture was celebrated and commemorated through various art forms at a time when African-Americans were thought not capable of a culture. Harlem was their home, where they could celebrate traditions and mourn their past. It was the epicenter of freedom. However, Harlem is going to see its decline during the tumultuous times of the 1960s, as most American cities did. The struggle of the civil rights movement is going to be felt hard in the Manhattan neighborhood because of its strong roots within the African American community. Harlem had been a place to celebrate and appreciate African American culture, so naturally it became home to many civil rights groups. The Black Panthers and the Nation of Islam were cornerstones of the Harlem community. Malcolm X called many places home throughout his short life, but one place that he identified with most was Harlem. Malcolm X had a strong following in the community. It's here where he organized several rallies and marches. Many in Harlem looked up to the civil rights leader. The Harlem citizens and family members that were a part of these groups sat on and watched the harrowing efforts of the men and women who took those freedom rides through the South, who tried to register African-American voters in order to make political change, and finally they witnessed the riots that took place in Birmingham in 1963. It was the following year that these riots would reach Harlem. In 1964, an incident between a landlord and a group of African-American boys would lead to police intervention. The landlord was not happy that the group of teenage boys who were attending summer school in the area were sitting on his building steps. He proceeded to spray the boys with a hose and say some pretty demeaning things to them with reference to the fact that he was cleaning up his stoop. The boys began yelling back and throwing things at the man. And this is going to gain the attention of a group of young African-American boys who were in the area. One of them was a ninth grader, James Powell. He entered the building chasing the man back inside. This is when an off-duty police lieutenant who had witnessed the events from a nearby shop entered the scene. An altercation ensued where some witnesses say Powell lunged at him with a knife. Others say he threw his hands up. Evidence shows there was a knife found eight feet from the body but the lunging is called into question. In total, the police officer, Lieutenant Gilligan, fired three shots, one a warning shot and the other two striking the boy. One hit an artery in his arm and the other shot straight through his stomach and out of his back. When students at the boys' school were informed of his death by their principal, they decided to act. What started out as a rally with the students and members of the Congress for Racial Equality, or CORE, turned into a full-blown riot. The Harlem riot of 1964 left 500 injured and just about as much arrested. The property damage of the riot was estimated anywhere between half a million and a million dollars. Tragedy and rioting is going to strike again when their beloved leader, Malcolm X, is going to be assassinated in 1965. The final riots, and the ones that proved to be the most costly for the neighborhood, are the riots that are going to ensue after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Now, I know it seems like we're getting really into this background, but trust me, it's all going to make sense towards the end of the case. The rioting of the 1960s left scars on Harlem, both physical and emotional. Two things are going to come from this violent time. First, there's going to be a mass exodus of the community. Middle-class African-American families that can afford to leave do so. They want a better life for their children, a life that doesn't center around violence. Second, those who remain within the community now have a strong distrust for the New York City Police Department. Now, due to the mass exodus in the late 1960s, those that remain in Harlem by the beginning of 1970s are mainly low-income families. The average family income in Harlem in the 1970s is around $6,400 which is far below the poverty line at the time. In comparison to other neighborhoods in New York City, Harlem's crime rates were 50% higher, the murder rate is 60 times higher, and there were 10 times more people addicted to drugs in Harlem than any other area in the city. Many buildings became abandoned and then became home to drug addicts and the homeless. Schools became decrepit and underfunded, but still the community thrived. Many photographers are going to take to the streets of Harlem in the 1970s to capture the culture and community. They captured images of children in ill-fitted clothing, jumping on dirty mattresses in the streets, warming their hands in trash can fires in the winter, and playing in open fire hydrants in the summer. The parks were mostly abandoned due to the equipment falling apart, so kids tended to play around those abandoned buildings. It seems as if trouble was just around the corner. The idea that the community lived outside and everyone knew each other gave parents a false sense of security, because in reality, Harlem was one of the most dangerous places in the country, a lesson they were all going to learn in 1972. On March 4, 1972, eight-year-old Douglas Owens went to run errands for his family. He never returned home again. His body was found five days later on the rooftop of a building on 121st Street. This was two blocks away from his home. His autopsy reveals that he was viciously stabbed 38 times. These wounds being mostly to his neck and chest area. His genitals were sliced open and there were clear signs that the boy had been sodomized by his attacker. Police believe that this was a personal attack because of the overkill factor, as well as the aggression shown in mutilating the boy's genitals. Because of this, they questioned all those acquainted with the boy. This, like I mentioned above, wasn't easy because of the strong distrust of the police force. However, all those questioned were cleared as suspects in the murder. The police were stumped. They had no witnesses and no physical evidence. They just kind of chalked it up to being something else that happened in Harlem at the time. A second boy is going to meet a similar fate six weeks after the attack on Douglas Owens. Victim number two, as we're gonna call him, was found clinging to life in the hallway of a West Side apartment. The boy had suffered 17 stab wounds to his stomach, almost as if the attacker was attending to gut the victim. He had been sodomized and his genitals were mutilated, but it was a little different than victim one because his genitals were actually cut off and taken from the scene. They were nowhere to be found. The boy was rushed to the hospital and emergency surgery was performed. Now, luckily, the boy survived this attack, but I couldn't imagine living with those scars.
1: Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, not having your genitals. I mean, I mean that first of all, being attacked. Yeah. Having those scars of being attacked, and then also
0: having a, to live a, a life. Piece of you yeah.
1: is missing. It's, it's very hard to handle. I'm sure, especially as a child.
0: Right, and that's definitely why they just they did not. I mean, first because he's a minor, but now he has to live some t- kind of normal life. He needs normal in his world, so his name has never been given, and he's never come forward, and he's never talked about the attack. So, of course, everyone respects his privacy. When the boy was conscious again, he was only able to give police a partial description of his attacker. He had medium to dark skin, he was slender, he was an adult, and he had a mole on his left cheek. He seemed to walk with a limp. The man had told the boy that his name was Michael and that if he followed him into the apartment building, he would give the boy 50 cents, which is the equivalent to like $3 today. But to this boy from Harlem, it's a lot of money. I mean, remember, we came across something similar when we talked about the Oakland County child killer. The pedophiles from Cass Corridor would lure children from low-income areas of Detroit, saying, "Oh, we'll give you food. Like I'll pay for your lunch. I'll give you some money."
1: Right. These kids in low-income uh, areas, I'm sure they're you know, one you know, anything free. I mean, is is a, is a win-win for him and his family. Right. Of course, if he could bring some money back to his family. That's 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 great.
0: <laughs> or he could actually like go buy candy at the local store or something. Or anything. <laughs> So he is definitely going, this shows signs that the killer knows his victims. He knows what's going to lure them. And it also shows signs of competency, which we'll get into later. Now to add to the bizarreness of this crime, this is so weird. The patrolling officers would later find the boy's missing penis and they would find it in a park. A group of boys were actually playing with it. And that's how they came across it. So I guess the attacker had maybe left the scene and just kind of thrown it. And I guess some boys kind of picked it up.
1: Just really quick question. I don't want to go too deep into this. Yeah. You know, sometimes, I mean, I, I can get a little off topic here. But how old were the children, number one? And two, you know what it is. Like, were they playing with it? Or they just come? Oh, they came across it?
0: I don't know. They don't give a huge description about, like, whether they're playing catch with it. I mean, maybe they were just kind of, like, poking it with a stick, not knowing. Like, because you could come across something like that, and then you'd be like, there's no friggin' way that that's what that is. So maybe it was just kind of, like, a curiosity. I'm just getting this,
1: like, mental picture that they're throwing a penis back and forth. All right. But anyway, enough. Go ahead.
0: I never (laughs) want to say penis this many times. At this time, the police didn't consider the fact that the same man committed both crimes. Despite the fact that the two crimes were hauntingly similar. First, the boys were both slashed and stabbed with the same type of knife. It seemed like a box cutter was used to mutilate or remove the genitals and both boys. So it seemed like he had two weapons with him. Both boys disappeared while they were running errands on a rainy day and their sneakers were both removed. The attacks only happened weeks apart and there was an element of overkill. The first boy was stabbed 38 times, the second 17, and they were both sexual crimes. Both boys were raped. So even though the police have all this evidence in front of them, they refuse to admit that this could be done by the same killer. Right. Okay. So this is when the community is going to start getting angry with law enforcement and several people are going to release statements saying that if this happened in a white neighborhood and these kids were going to private school, this would be all over the place. But as of right now, nothing is going to be said in the media and the police aren't going to release any statements regarding the fact that these two crimes could possibly be related.
1: I could understand that, though. It's I mean, very I mean, frustrating. I could understand that. The only thing I could say, though, is, you know just as well as I... The reason why they're probably kind of be, they're saying, "Oh, they're not connected," is probably just a matter of funding. Because if if they are related, and now they're looking for a serial killer slash rapist, I mean, now you are looking into like you have to put a whole team together now to find out.
0: Yeah, you got to start you know, a task force. Uh, you got to have
1: a task force. But no matter what, I mean, these, these cops should be fucking doing their job.
0: It also could be the fact that they don't want to start a mass hysteria within the community because we'll see what happens when the people of Harlem get fired up. And maybe the police were trying to avoid that. So there's many reasons why they could deny the fact that it could be the same killer. It could be the fact that they are in denial, that they're trying to protect the community from a freakout, or the fact that they just don't want to investigate it as a serial murder yet. Six months later, the man would strike again. At around 5.30 p.m. on October 23, 1972, Mary Hubbard is going to call police and report her nine-year-old son, Wendell Hubbard, missing. Now, there has been some discussion that the Hubbards didn't live in Harlem, but their building was technically right on the border of the Upper West Side and Harlem. However, they didn't live anywhere near the wealthy section of town, and according to school zoning records, Wendell attended schools within the Harlem School District. Hubbard reported that when she looked out the apartment window an hour prior, she saw her son playing in the yard area behind the building. She told him that it was time to come in. But after 20 to 30 minutes passed, she went to look for him after he didn't come into the apartment and she couldn't find him anywhere. So after an hour of looking, she decided to phone the police, knowing that in the past seven months, two boys had been attacked the way they had been. The police arrived at the apartment and got a description of the boy. They said that they would canvass the area, look around, ask other children if they knew where he might be or if they saw him, and after a few hours of searching and no luck, the officers returned to her and said that her son was nowhere to be found and that he probably wandered off. They assured her that they would have a few officers continuing the search, but most likely he would return. Mary Hubbard knew that he wasn't going to return because she said it was very unlike her son to wander off or defy her like this. It wouldn't be the police who found Wendell, but a group of his friends. At around 9.45 p.m. that night, three boys who were playing on the roof of their apartment building, which was also Wendell's, found the motionless body of a boy. A boy who could have been any one of them. They ran downstairs to flag down the officer who had asked them questions earlier. His mother, who was in shock from the day's events, and the fact that she had just seen her boy alive five hours prior, had to identify the body of her son, just floors above the home that they had shared. Wendell Hubbard was the third victim, and the second boy killed. Wendell's autopsy revealed that, identically to victim two, he was stabbed 17 times, sodomized, and his genitals also removed and taken from the scene. Same M.O. as the other two boys. Sneakers removed, frenzied stabbing patterns. Detectives from the 6th Precinct, Homicide and Assault Squad, were called to the apartment. They still refused to say or investigate the fact that they were dealing with a serial killer. They still would not admit that these murders were associated with each other.
1: Now, that's that's incredible. I mean, that's, that's completely incompetent by the precinct. You know, it's crazy. To They, say, have, they have three victims that... Are identical. Their genitals the genitals have The M O is removed. exactly the same. The frenzy, t- you know, style patterns. They've been stabbed multiple times. I mean, it's crazy. All How, three were how can rates. they not be connected?
0: Right. There's no way that. And it's not like, oh, these details were released in the media because no one was paying attention to what was happening. Right, the details
1: are like... They're they're super secret. They're super secret. You're going to tell me that there's two guys, let's say, in Harlem that are going around...
0: Doing the same thing. ...killing
1: someone, raping them, and removing their genitals? I mean, that's that's incredible. Obviously, they're related.
0: Yeah. So, the police are going to question everyone in the building to see if they saw anything unusual. They also questioned people who were outside the whole day to see if they saw anything either. Everyone said they didn't notice anything suspicious. The police at this point make the inference that the killer must be an African-American, despite the fact that victim number two gave a description which seemed to be more of a Spanish man. So now they're claiming that this guy that that killed Wendell was an African-American, and they deduce that because it is a predominantly African-American community, And they said that because the witnesses didn't recognize anything weird or out of place, that it couldn't have been a white male because then they would have said that he was weird or out of place. So now they're just assuming things.
1: Right. But given given the time, given the neighborhood, given the tension with, you know, African Americans, white people, I don't want to get into that too much, but all I want to say is just, you know, it's like a sore thumb sticking out so if if a predominantly african american neighborhood sees just a white man acting you know really freaking strange they're obviously going to remember that correct they're going to see that
0: but i think it's we it's not right for them to then assume that the killer is african american
1: no you can you can't you shouldn't be assuming anything just say anything that he
0: in, he isn't white
1: no i understand that but you get what i'm trying to say i it know exactly totally what you're out, trying like, a to sore say thumb.
0: oh 100% yeah but even despite skin color Like, put that all aside. He's stabbed a boy either 38 or 17 times. This guy has to have blood all over him. How is he evading all of these witnesses? It's crazy. It is crazy. So, it is clear that Wendell was stopped somewhere between his backyard and his apartment door. This means the key to solving his murder was with those who resided within the complex. However, the last thing they wanted to do was speak to police. No one was going to be candid about what they saw. They were still angry with the police with the fact that they're denying the fact that there's one man who's preying upon all of their children. Maybe someone did have useful information, but at this point, they felt the police were useless because above all else, everyone is going to say the police refused to say that they're dealing with a serial killer, and clearly they didn't look hard enough. For Wendell, because the whole time, he was on the roof. Hmm. For all we know, when we called the police, the attack could have still been taking place.
1: That's true. I mean, unless this guy is like, uh, uh, you quick know, in, Dexter. Quick in, quick out. Yeah. <laughs> and it has like a whole setup. Don't I mean, say that.
0: Dexter would never kill these children. That's true. <laughs> okay. It's not until there's a fourth victim that police are going to finally admit that they're probably dealing with a serial killer. On March 7th, days from the one-year mark of the first attack, 10-year-old Louise Ortiz was found dumped in a basement stairwell at 1 p.m. The building he was found in was at 200 West 106th Street. Louise was the only victim who was not African-American, but was of Puerto Rican descent. However, Louise had a very dark complexion and could have appeared to have been African-American. So that's why they think that he deviated from his typical victims because maybe he may have mistaken Louise for an African-American boy.
1: So it shows you that he's definitely targeting african American. I mean, he's definitely targeting. At least
0: someone with dark complexions. Right, okay. The boy was sent to run errands the night before. He was to pick up bread and milk for himself and his five brothers and sisters just before 8.15. The grocer on Amsterdam Street store recalls louise coming in around 8:30 p.m he remembers it well because the boy was 13 cents short and he told him he was good for it when the boy was found the milk and bread were missing louise was stabbed 38 times by his assailant which i think is very interesting the fact that you're ha- you have four victims so far two of them were stabbed 38 times and two of them were stabbed 17 times and you have to wonder if there's a significance of these numbers
1: I mean, unless he's literally there counting, yeah, counting his stamps. I mean, actually, it could be that the victims that have more than 17, maybe they were fighting back.
0: Yeah, or, I mean, I guess after a while it is hard to determine how many stab wounds there are, and this is just an estimate number. So
1: true, you could look you, really into yeah, it,
0: or you could dismiss that's it. True. Yeah. Louise also had his genitals mutilated and removed from the scene. There's also signs that he was sexually assaulted as well. This time, however, the police found witnesses and they were finally willing to admit that they were dealing with a serial killer. A lot of people are going to speculate the fact that Louise was killed in Spanish Harlem and that the Spanish residents are going to have... um, a little bit of a better relationship with the New York Police Department, so maybe that's why their witnesses were more willing to speak with the police versus of the African-American community. Witnesses said they saw Ortiz speaking with a man, and together with all their descriptions, they created a composite sketch that all of the witnesses could agree on. And it's funny because their composite sketch looked exactly the way victim two had described the man. Everything was the same to the mole on the left cheek. He was a Spanish man. The only addition that they added was the fact that he had acne scars on his face. Now that the sixth precinct believes they are working with a serial killer, a task force is created using detectives from neighboring states, as well as members of the FBI. There are 10 people on this task force. A tip line is also set up and within 24 hours, over 300 tips had been called in. It seemed as if the community is finally beginning to talk. However, that's a lot of leads to follow up on. And on top of these leads, detectives are planning to question all the known pedophiles in Harlem. And that list is over 150 people long. My God. It's insane. There's
1: way too many rapists. Oh my God.
0: Well, when, you're lo- when I was looking into accounts of other children from the areas, like remembering this time and how scared they were, they said that... Throughout their childhood, they were approached by many people. And this seemed to have been like kind of a common thing that was happening in the area, that there was a lot of pedophiles in Harlem. And it was rare that a child wasn't approached by one of them at a time, one time or another.
1: I mean, just quickly here. Like, when I I grew up in Queens, and it's funny how when I was a child, you know, when we would go out places with my mother and my father, you know, my dad would used to say, okay, we're going to the city and literally if you were in any other borough other than Manhattan everyone from those boroughs calls Manhattan the city so and it's it's just weird so when you go there you know like my dad would be like oh watch out for this oh watch out for that like you know stay next to me and it was i guess it was because my dad was growing up during this time right and my dad was always told those things you know you know you got to watch out for these people whatever you get my point point. and it's just funny how because of his childhood he made he made me be very vigilant, aware and yeah. vi- vigilant, and it's just kind of crazy. But anyway,
0: yeah, that is. It seems like that is where people had to watch out.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And
0: that's definitely what you hear from the kids that grew up during that neighborhood during that time. However, the efforts made by this newly created task force are going to be too little, too late for the final victim of this serial killer, Stephen Cropper, who was seven years old. Is recognized as the last victim of a serial killer. However, many argue that his murder is unrelated to that of the other boys. On August 17, 1973, a woman who was walking her dog on the roof of her tenement building, trying to escape the heat of her non air conditioned apartment at 325 East Houston Street, discovered the body of the boy. She immediately ran downstairs and called the police. When the police arrived at the scene, they note that he was found in a sexually suggestive pose. His shirt was pulled over his shoulders and his pants were down to his ankles. His sneakers had been taken off and placed neatly next to his body. His body was slashed in several places and an X was carved deeply into his chest, they think with a box cutter. There were no signs of sexual assault and his genitals were intact so this was different from the attack of the other boys the one thing is the one thing that's very similar is where his body was left and the fact that his shoes were taken off and that he was viciously slashed and stabbed Hmm. so maybe we can infer that he was um interrupted
1: definitely maybe that's what i was thinking in my head just now yeah he was definitely interrupted couldn't finish what he you know
0: had started exactly The police are going to question people door to door in the building where the body was found and surrounding buildings. In asking questions in a building nearby on Pitt Street, they ran into a couple that claimed they were missing their son, and they had seen him only just an hour ago. The couple was taken to Belleville Hospital morgue, where Mrs. Cropper is going to collapse upon seeing her son. Police on the task force are going to conclude that it's very unlikely that a killer with the same MO, sexual crimes in which the victim's shoes were taken off, was highly unlikely. So they knew that it was the same guy.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, the MO is like almost
0: identical. Right. It so just it seems has to be. Like he didn't finish. Right. And I know what you're thinking. Another sicko heard about the case through the media. And he just wanted to use a similar M.O. so we didn't get caught. But that's impossible. Because still at this time, even after four victims, there were only two reporters that followed this crime. And um, they both worked for the New York Times. And they kind of followed it more on a, not, hey, this is a serial killer, watch out. But a, why the hell is nobody paying attention to the fact that this is happening? Right, they were trying
1: to be, they were trying to bring light to the To the situation, correct. Correct, yeah.
0: The shoe detail was never in any of the articles that they published, so that was not something that people knew about. Another factor is the timing of the murders and the distance between the crimes seemed to coincide as well. I know that if you're unfamiliar with the area, you kind of don't know where these murders are taking place, but the murders are kind of dispersed all throughout Harlem. So that was something that was confusing detectives a little bit. But Cropper's murder kind of gave a center point between a lot of the other victims. So although it was dispersed throughout Harlem, it's going to kind of give them a map area of where these murders were taking place. A psychologist who was known to assist the police offered an analysis on the killer, which is going to greatly help police with their daunting task of sifting through their list of pedophiles. So, they wanted to ask a psychologist, what's going to drive this person? How can we start eliminating pedophiles? Because they're obviously horrible people, but are they capable of committing these crimes? So, that is when Dr. Harvey Schlossberg, who is associated with St. John's University, is going to step in and kind of give them what we would consider a profile. He stated that the killer that they were looking for was probably psychotic. He was afraid of women And he was disturbed by his own sexuality. He's also going to conclude that the month of March is probably very significant for him. Maybe something happened in that month that's going to anger him in some way. An anniversary, a birthday. Because that's when the murders are going to start and then kind of like reappear after like a mini hiatus. And then it always seems like after March there's like a six to seven month period and then they happen again. That's crazy. Yeah, like, he's triggered by something that happened in March, clearly. It's also
1: also crazy how, like, these um, profilers can really kind of, like, pinpoint, you know, um, and get inside those, like, killers' heads and stuff. It's really interesting, actually.
0: Interesting and scary. It's a dangerous place to be. Oh, yeah. They also are going to infer... He's also going to infer that the serial killer could be the nice guy in the neighborhood and that he is going to hold in his anger but release it in fits of rage where he's going to fly into these psychotic episodes and maybe that's when the murders are taking place. He also says something very interesting because whenever we hear that someone's been stabbed so many times that it's overkill and it must be personal and they must be really pissed off, but this psychologist is going to say, no, that infers something different about this killer. The stabbings aren't overkill. The stabbings are of a sexual nature, and each stabbing is kind of like a symbolic penal penetration, so it's like intercourse for him, and then that would explain the amount of stabbings, because it's like him having sex with the victim. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And that would explain the amount of stab wounds, and then that would show us that it's not overkill, but it's, it's another form of his sexual release. Right. The doctor also referred to other studies done on sex offenders who molest same-gender victims, particularly male-on-male crimes. The findings concurred that men were often horrified by their sexual feelings towards those of the same sex, so they castrate or mutilate their genitals as a way to deny their feelings or turn them into females. And then that, in turn, is their way to get around the homosexuality of their act.
1: I understand, yeah.
0: So they're turning them into females. So that is going to explain a lot about the killer. It's also going to help them get through that list of pedophiles because they now they know specifically what kind of person they're looking for. Now, when asked how the killer feels about all the wanted posters that are hanging up around Harlem, Schlossberg said that it probably stimulated him and made him feel important, and this could soothe his feelings of inadequacy. So, he really was getting off on the fact that he's been eluding law enforcement. He also said it would anger the killer if law enforcement inferred that he wasn't able to hold a relationship with a woman. So, he was kind of encouraging law enforcement to go to the media and say these things. But law enforcement wasn't going anywhere near the media. And the media wasn't coming to law enforcement. So, this isn't a tactic that's going to be used. Okay. So, we had gone back and forth about expressing the nickname given to the serial killer. Mostly because it's crude, and I think in some ways it makes a mockery of the lives that were stomped out by this maniac. However, in doing research into the case, we found out where the origin of this nickname comes from, and that it makes sense. It adds also to the tragedy of the case in general. In a way, it personifies the case as a whole, and the feelings of those who were the killer's target, the children. Although not called so in the media at the time of the murders, the man was referred to by the police and the community as Charlie Chopoff. In this real-life version of it and the Candyman, the children give this man the nickname because to them, they were the ones alone facing this boogeyman. It seemed to the boys of Harlem that no one could protect them, whether it was day or night, whether the police or their parents were around Whether they were on a rooftop, going back to their apartment, or they were in a basement, they were not safe. And thus, this man became the playground legend. The urban myth warning, watch out for Charlie Chopoff. He's going to get you if you're alone.
1: And that speaks volumes, um, you know, to the children in this community. You know, because, like, not only did this guy commit these horrific acts, but it left such a deep emotional scar that even though these kids weren't directly affected, everything that they witnessed just completely just fucked them up.
0: Yeah, they're going to be traumatized from dealing with this. And it really is such a real-life Candyman scenario. Like, that's what's happening. These kids don't feel like they're being supported. They don't feel like they're being protected. And... The fear of the children is going to bleed into the fear of the parents because there's nothing that you feel more helpless about if you can't protect your child. And that's how the parents of Harlem were feeling. Going back to the children being scarred by all of this, if you remember from the murders and the attacks that we had talked about, the children were deeply involved in those attacks. So even though it sounded, you know, weird, but remember when victim two was attacked and his genitals were found in the playground those kids were they're gonna add to this urban legend myth because they're gonna say yeah we found the body part and then that gets talked about on the school playground and then Wendell's friends found him on the rooftop they're gonna go back to school and they're gonna tell their friends and and this scary boogeyman just get keeps getting scarier and scarier and the children of Harlem are terrified.
1: What happens is it becomes uh, it becomes real, yeah. and it, that stuff spreads like wildfire. Right. You know, I mean, even though there are facts, it's not like it's fake. But these facts spread like wildfire, and now you have and they, all these and they
0: grow. You know, their yeah. kids. So, even the police are canvassing the area, and they're asking all of these kids. So the kids are aware that something is taking place, and and they're horrified. They were so much a part of this case, and. Talking about all of this, like we said, it's going to just continue to grow this, this boogeyman of like Charlie Chopoff is what they call him. And it is a childlike nickname because it's the children that give it to him. And as the legends of Charlie Chopoff grew and grew, principals and teachers are going to report changes in all the young boys. They stay together on the school playgrounds. They play morbid killer games. They're going to cry and wish that they could be girls so Charlie wouldn't chase after them. They also asked questions that were unusual for 8-year-old boys to ask. Um, if they could live without their penises and what sodomy is. Because this is what they were scared of. They didn't know what their parents were talking about. And they were asking their teachers these questions. That's terrible. I know. The boys of the community walked home together all while carrying the composite sketch of the man that could at any moment end their life. Once they got to their buildings, they yelled back and forth to each other until they got to the safety of their apartments and quickly locked their doors. Where boys used to run wild in the streets, they were now afraid to leave their homes. The fear the children had was only going to amplify the feelings of their parents. Throughout this entire ordeal, the citizens of Harlem were scared and furious. They felt like they were incapable of keeping their children from harm. They did not allow their children to play outside or go to the community pool. The fear and anger that the community felt reverted them back to what they had learned or felt in the 1960s. The police are not going to protect us, and they do not care about the crimes that are happening within the African-American community. They felt that they were not being listened to. As after victim two and three, they stated they had a serial killer on their hands and law enforcement did not want to listen. And much like they had done with the Black Panther Party and the Nation of Islam, they're going to take matters into their own hands with the vigilante style of justice. This is going to be made clear as the police start to bring in men for questioning. The police bring the first viable suspect in for questioning after they get a phone call from a receptionist at a local comprehensive health health center where posters of the suspect had been placed all around. So this is going to happen on August 21st, 1973. She told police that a man who is currently at the center for a job interview looks just like the man on the poster. The police quickly arrive and take the man into custody. All we are going to release is that this man's name is Gonzalez. So That's what we're going to call him. And at the time he was 22 years old. Unfortunately, the New York Times released this man's name, but we're not going to do the same, and we'll get into why. Word is going to spread quickly that a man was taken into custody, and a crowd of eventually 500 people would gather outside the police station, yelling for the man to be released to them. At this point, citizens were jumping over police barricades, jumping on top of police cars, and holding makeshift nooses. The police had questions Gonzalez. And he had a pretty solid alibi for the first two attacks. He'd been enlisted in the Air Force. He has no criminal background, and unfortunately, he just resembled the wanted poster.
1: Wow, mistaken identity. (laughs) Yeah,
0: and he's probably not going to get the job now.
1: Yeah, really, that makes things a lot difficult. Yeah.
0: Um, The New York Times is going to release his full name, and this is going to be really difficult for him because he does have mobs show up to his house eventually, and... He has to explain to them over and over again that he just had nothing to do with this and that he was in the Air Force. But luckily, no violence came to him. Police knew that they couldn't release Gonzalez to the bloodthirsty crowd because they just wanted to hurt somebody. And they actually had to set up kind of like a decoy thing. They dressed up Gonzalez as a police officer and had him walk a perp with blonde hair, who was actually a police officer, to a waiting SUV, where they then drove him back to his Bronx home. This worked, and when the crowds found out that they were dubbed, they eventually left emotionally spent. But thank God no violence had taken place that day.
1: That's actually brilliant thinking on the police right there. Yeah,
0: because they wanted to walk out with blonde hair. I mean, could you imagine
1: if violence did ensue? I mean, it would have been really bad, and he didn't even do anything.
0: No, not at all. This was not the first time crowds had gathered outside the police station, However, After the murder of Wendell Hubbard, the community held a protest for hours outside of the station because they felt the police were not doing enough to protect their children. And oddly enough, no media is going to cover this. They were stating that the police were in denial about the fact they had a serial killer on their hands, which, in reality, they were. Police responded that they were going to soon put together a task force, which, of course, they did after the fourth victim, though and they would keep the community informed about all new leads in the case. Despite the tragic circumstances, the community banded together to keep their children safe and support the families of the victims. Students from PS 145 made a public service video and played it in all Harlem schools. In the video, they warned students about safety, walking home, and never talking to strangers. The community also raised $600 for the Ortiz family to have a funeral for Louise. Fortunately, the murder of the of young Louise proved to be too much for the Ortiz family, and they moved back to Puerto Rico. America just didn't turn out the way that it should have for them. Gonzalez was not the only suspect police had. On August 29, 1973, a man was indicted on charges of sexually abusing a young boy in a park near 172nd Street. The man's name was Daniel Olivo. He approached a boy playing in a park and told him that they could play ball together. Olivo took the boy to a secluded location and sexually assaulted him. The boy was able to get away and ran to his father that was also in the park. Olivo tried to hide but was later captured not far from the park. He matched the description of Charlie Chopoff and he was also questioned by police regarding these murders and the one attack. However, using the profile created by Schlossberg, the fact and the fact that Olivo never killed or mutilated boys in his past attacks, it was clear that he wasn't Charlie Chapluff because he did sexually attack his victims, but he very much was into the fact that they were boys.
1: Right. But so he
0: wouldn't try to sexually mutilate them.
1: But wouldn't that be some sort, of, some form of escalation, though?
0: No, only because, unfortunately, all of those crimes involved those boys' genitals. So he wouldn't cut them off. Gotcha. Yeah. The case will turn cold until police are called to the scene of a Harlem neighborhood where Erno Soto was being held by citizens who caught him trying to accost a nine-year-old boy on May twenty-fourth, 1974. The boy was out running errands when he was attacked, Soto was taken into custody. So basically, they saw him attacking this boy and members of the community held him till police could get there.
1: So it was like a citizen's arrest.
0: Basically. Okay. This was not the first time Soto had been brought to the attention of police regarding the Charlie Chopoff murders. Two weeks after the murder of, of Ortiz, a female resident from the Bronx called police to let them know the killer was Erno Soto. She stated that Soto had been in a psychiatric institution and was known to be strange and violent. Police questioned Soto's cousin and wife. They both hadn't heard from him in months, and when they gave police his description, they described him as being tall. So because they hadn't seen him in months and he was tall, they just assumed that he wasn't Charlie Chopoff, and they never followed up on Soto. Are you serious? Yeah.
1: They spend all this energy to find these people and they don't even try to follow oh up my on fucking them. God.
0: But here we are again, being confronted with Soto, who is now 33 years old. He was practically caught red handed. Given his disorganized mental state, he was taken immediately to the prison psychiatric ward at Bellevue Hospital. He perfectly fit the description and had relatives living near all of the crime scenes. And now, all of a sudden, this widely dispersed crime scenes, now all make sense.
1: Right, because they're all places where he could stay.
0: Right. And the mental institution that Soto occasionally stayed at was 20 blocks from the first victim. It was directly across the street from victim number two. It was 27 blocks from the third victim. And his father lived in the same neighborhood as the fifth victim.
1: Okay, I mean, come on. You know that has to be... He
0: has to be the guy. Well, witnesses were taken to Bellevue, and they all identified Soto as the man they saw with Louise Ortiz. So now it's going to associate him with victim four. Wow. Soto immediately confessed to Cropper's murders, and detectives believed that they'd closed the case on the killer who had paralyzed the children of Harlem. What made this more clear for them was Soto's home life. Get this. Soto was a Puerto Rican man, and he was married to a Puerto Rican woman. However, there was a time when they had separated for a few years. The couple decided to get back together. However, during their time apart, Soto's wife had a child with a black man. So now she has an African American son. If Soto wanted to make things work, he would have to accept this boy as his son. And on the surface, it looked like Soto had accepted the boy. But there is a possibility that this arrangement was starting to get under the man's skin. While he was frustrated with his living situation, his mental health is also deteriorating. His mental illness had progressed to the point where he could no longer restrain its manifestations. The situation with his marriage simply gave those manifestations their specific frame stalking and mutilating young African-American boys, the object of his aggression.
1: It all is coming together now.
0: Right. As their son grew older, his behavior got more and more erratic, hitting its peak when the boy turned eight years old in 1969. This is when he's going to spend his longest bout of time in a mental facility. And he goes in in 1969 And he's released in 1972, when the murders start.
1: Right, so he's holding all this aggression and hatred...
0: Towards eight-year-old African-American boys.
1: Right, due to the fact that his wife had a child...
0: With another man. ...of
1: African-American descent, yes. Wow.
0: Throughout his life, Soto had been in jail or mental facilities for 11 years. Now, during some of the murders, Soto was in Dunlap, Manhattan Psychiatric Center especially during times of 1972-1973. However, the facility did state that Soto was able to check out whenever he wanted and that he was prone to extreme bouts of violence. So I know you're saying this is supposed to be unsolved, and there is a reason why these crimes are unsolved, and we're going to get to them in a second. Despite the fact that this all makes so much sense that it's Soto, It doesn't explain the whole pedophile, homosexual aspects of the crime, right? Those are things that we're never going to know about because Soto is never going to discuss them. We also don't know where Soto is at this time. He did, however, admit to stalking African-American boys and killing Cropper. But this could have been an interesting uh, tactic for him because Cropper's murders were so different from that of the other boys. So if he admits admits to one that's different, then he could easily say that a serial killer was responsible for the other four. Because the other four have the same exact M.O. The fifth one has a different M.O. Kind of. You know what I'm saying?
1: Right. It's a good defense strategy.
0: Right. However, during questioning by police, Soto was going to say that God told him to turn little boys into girls. And this could be considered his confession to the other crimes. It seems like a slam-dunk case against Soto, but there are some problems. First, the surviving victim did not identify Soto as the attacker.
1: <laughs> that's unbelievable.
0: And you could chalk that up to trauma. Yeah. But, I mean, I, it affects everyone different. We don't know if he got a good view of him. We don't know how the attack took place. We don't know if that's a repressed memory that the boy just does not want to surface. It could be many things. Because if you think about it, the boy's still extremely young this case is going to actually take... The trial is going to take place in 1975. The second problem that we're going to have is... Would the confession of a man with a mental illness stand in court? Soto was definitely not of sound mind when he gave the confession to the eager police force. Any type of leading questions could have led him to say these things. So maybe he was responsible for Cropper's murder.
1: Are you trying to say it's like that making a murderer thing with the boy?
0: But well... Kind of like maybe they were leading him, and this is a man who's mentally ill. So maybe he was just telling the police what he wanted. We also don't know how long the interrogation was for, if they were aggressive with him. I mean, this is a police force that wants these crimes solved because they have a highly aggressive community biting at their ankles. So we don't know what the conditions of the confession were.
1: I understand what you're saying. Yeah, definitely.
0: At Soto's murder trial before a judge on the state Supreme Court, a psychiatrist, Dr. John Baer, described him as a walking time bomb and insisted that he was in need of constant supervision. Another psychiatrist is going to deem him extremely dangerous and diagnose him with schizophrenia, and he's going to state that his attacks stemmed from religious delusions and a need for ritual. So these psychiatrists are kind of implying that they feel that he was responsible for all five attacks. The judge deemed Soto not guilty for reason of insanity.
1: Are you kidding me? No. The
0: judge was not happy with this. And he's even going to go as far to state that he believes that this not guilty by reason of insanity, whole law should be changed. So The judge wasn't happy, but he couldn't deny the fact that Soto was not mentally capable. Of discerning right from wrong.
1: You have got to be kidding me. Yeah. Away.
0: Soto was transferred to a maximum security psychiatric institution. Um, there's no records of where he's state where he's staying now, but he's definitely still, he's either institutionalized. But there's no records of his death, so we just don't know where he's institutionalized at this moment. An interesting side note here: when Soto gets arrested, his brother Pedro is going to get into a huge argument with their father. And he actually blames his father for Erno's arrest and for the way that he is. And he stabs his father and kills him. And Pedro is actually in jail for the rest of his life for killing his father. So that makes me think that maybe there is some type of trauma, perhaps sexual, that happened early on in his life that's going to also aid in this aggression towards um, homosexuality rape young boys that maybe took place with his father
1: all the pieces are starting to connect I mean that is crazy though yeah oh my god
0: so technically because Soto was found not guilty these murders have never been solved many agree because there's still a lot of unanswered questions I mean it's easy to say yeah Soto did it and trust me there's overwhelming facts that make me feel like Soto did it but there's some questions that need to be talked about first. Could a psychotic man really have committed those murders? It seems like the killer is persuasive and organized. How did he get these boys on their own? He, he had to have looked decent to, to get them off on their own. You know what I'm saying? Like, he can't be this psychotic maniac that they're depicting him to be. There's ha- some type of organization.
1: Yeah, but see, but that's what... See, it's hard to understand, but you got to remember the time. You also have to remember that these kids are, in, are, are, are poverty-stricken. You also have to remember that maybe that's one of the reasons why he's extremely dangerous. Because uh, being able to lure someone to him, he can be completely calm under pressure... And that's what makes him completely dangerous. So
0: it's like a Jekyll and Hyde. Kind yes, of thing. exactly.
1: It's like he acts the part to grab that person in, and then in a blink of like an and eye, he
0: turns psychotic. He can turn
1: psychotic. And that's what makes him another level of crazy.
0: That's true. I mean, this, these murders took place, most of them, in the middle of the day.
1: Right. Which and he means, had to
0: have walked away.
1: Right, which means he's incredibly ballsy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that, in every description that I've read of Soto, He's like a maniac. Like there is no organization to him. He's crazy. But maybe he escalated to that.
1: Right. Or it's just that in that moment of like getting that person to like, you know, getting that person where they need to be, he's completely calm. Like I said, maybe it's just like a switch thing with him where he knows that he has to be cool and composed to get that person to come to him, and then he can do what he wants.
0: Right. See, because I I almost think that these murders that took place with these boys were not fits of rage. Because if you think about it, it has to be planned out. It has to be planned out because you're stabbing someone over 17 times. 17 times or over, right? Um, you're mutilating their genitals. You're taking the genitals with you. There is no way that you're not walking out with blood on you unless you have, like, a plan to clean yourself up, a change of clothes, somewhere to keep what you're taking from the scene. I don't think it's this frenzied act. I think it's very planned out because Harlem was an outside-lived community. Everyone was always outside, no matter what time of year it is. That's where they live, outside on their... Everyone sits on their porch, they watch what's happening, they were watching the kids play, people were looking out their windows, like, how was this man not seen? How did he walk away with no blood on him? That makes me think it wasn't a psychotic fit of rage.
1: I understand. There had to... No, I agree with you with the whole, there had to be some sort of planning. There has to be. Yeah. There has to be planning involved, or he'd get caught at the first, you know, at the first victim, but... I mean, I don't know. There's just I feel like that's what makes this guy extremely dangerous is the fact that he most likely can stay composed to lure their victim and then as soon as he has them where they where he wants them, he's able to turn that crazy switch on. But like you said, is he really that crazy? Like is he crazy? Right. Where he could avoid you know being put away. <laughs>
0: There's also another theory out there that Soto isn't responsible for these murders. It was another serial killer who was focused on preying upon the less dead. Um, Members of low-income or diverse communities where the media and the police are going to pay less attention. Okay. So maybe this killer was focused on this area... And once, you know, he was getting some heat, he just moved on to another area, which is going to let allow him to continue to prey upon the less dead. And maybe he just changed his MO because he knows now he has to hide it more.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that's possible. I also, the whole um, Harlem scene really paints like this really good picture for me because if you're a serial killer during this time in Harlem, you know... I know that these streets have not been changed, and uh, there's a lot of alleyways in Manhattan. I know it's like everyone thinks, oh, Times Square, oh, Central Park, all these places, but I'm telling you, there are alleys among alleys that lead to other streets. There's lots of ways to get in and out, and I just – that really does it for me because – yeah there has to be some sort of uh, planning, but it's easy to do, easy to get away. And if he had family members in all these little sections of the area, he could just he run could to easily house. run to the alley down another street, down another side street right. and now they're home. well, sort of home. You know? I do
0: think it does point a hundred percent towards Soto. I mean, it does seem like there there can't be more red arrows pointing directly at the man,
1: right. And then you know what too? There was no more attacks.
0: Mm-hmm. It's true.
1: There was no more tax.
0: So it definitely, I don't know, for me, I think it does point to Soto.
1: I think it is Soto. I think we could both agree it's Soto. I think there's just too many um, variables that they, they just work out for him. It, everything works out for this guy. I
0: know. Maybe he just, maybe he was playing up this crazy man act to get released for... Reasons of insanity? I
1: think that was the only defense he could play. Like that was his only move. I think that was his only move. And look at it this way, right? We talk we keep talking about this. We keep throwing it around, right? How crazy was how crazy was he, right? You have to understand this. If he was allowed to check himself in and out of rehab, I'm not you know, that's weird to me.
0: I completely get what you're saying. That's actually a really interesting point. So he was able to play up his, like, sh- schmooze his way out of this institution, check himself in, check himself out. So if he's good at playing up that, he was probably good enough at playing up, hey, come with me, I want to show you something, or right. I want to give you anything. 50 this is the
1: perfect opportunity to show his character. Like, we're talking about this guy on this podcast right now, and that is the perfect point that shows his true character and his nature. Right. He's able to manipulate and coerce people, And bend them to his will.
0: Right, because it seemed like he did so with the people in the psychiatric institution. And he did so with his family, possibly his wife. He kind of pulled the wool over people's eyes. Like, oh, I accept the fact that this boy is now my son. But in reality, he was, he like this growing anger.
1: And one other thing. And it kind of ties into what we just said just now. If you're going to plea, if your plea is, I'm insane... How good does it look on record that you've been in and out of institutions?
0: Oh, it looks amazing. For 11 years, the majority of which he was in psychiatric institutions, not in actual jail. So like he's
1: building his resume of insanity. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, not only did he do these acts, but he had the uh, the wherewithal to think into the future to say, if I am indeed caught...
0: That's so scary. if he's Now not calculating. I
1: know that I can make a defense by saying, "Oh, I was in and out of uh, an institution."
0: Right, right.
1: Now I like mean, he's been now, planning
0: this the whole time. Right, possibly. and then at the end
1: of the day, the only one that's the only people that are really responsible for him at the end of this is the institution itself for dropping the ball for not keeping this guy in. Wow, you know,
0: no, that's a that's a great point. So we're going soda with this one.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this guy is fucking guilty. Yeah. So guilty.
0: Okay, so we wanted to just take some time out to talk about the pattern community out there. First, we want to thank the True Crime guys for giving us that shout out. It's so much appreciated. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thanks, guys. We really appreciate it.
0: We love listening to you guys. If you're looking for a new true crime podcast to listen to, definitely check them out, the True Crime Guys. They put an awesome twist and personality to some of the cases that you've heard before. My favorite episodes are the two on the Night Stalker. I I love love that. Yeah, me too. So that's really great stuff, guys. Keep up the great work. Please check them out, True Crime Guys. And if true crime and comedy is more of your thing, we have a few more for you to check out. First is the Brohio podcast that covers everything from hauntings, killers, and Johnny's favorite, extraterrestrials. Hell yeah. We love these guys and they're really funny. Really, really reminds me of like the whole last podcast on the left kind of feel of it all. And it's really entertaining. They're doing such an amazing job. Check them out, the Brohio podcast. Also, we have Red Handed, the podcast. These two women are so great, and they're really funny, and the research they do is amazing. What I like most about their podcast is that they cover episodes that kind of aren't talked about too much, so they don't stick too much with the mainstream cases, but they really bring up these great cases you've never heard of before, which is always interesting. We love the work you're doing. Keep it up, guys. Please give those three people a try if you aren't already listening to them like we are. Uh, Once again, please follow us on social media, The True Crime Couple, and tell us what you think about this episode. Leave us an iTunes review if you're feeling generous. We appreciate them all. All right. Thanks, guys.
1: Bye, guys.